Hello! We're glad that you joined us. We hope that you're doing well, and we're really glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today we'd like to talk about a issue that has caused a lot of confrontation and argument and disputation in Christendom for especially the past 500 years, but the antecedents are 1,500 years old in terms of faith, works, and grace. In the religious climate, we, we find people saying that faith only saves. Uh, people want to deny the importance of works. And, uh, of course, there's also the issue of God's grace. And these discussions are rarely quite profitable because people have their own viewpoints, and they doggedly insist on them. Uh, Protestants tend to look at passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and think that faith is the gift, even though grammatically even it must be salvation. And Romans three twenty two and 24 uh, talking about justification by faith, and do not look at James two fourteen through twenty six, or try to explain away James two fourteen through twenty six as if it could not mean what it actually says. On the other hand, a lot of other people and others say, "Well, we'll use James two fourteen through twenty six as the main way in which they look at at things about justification by faith and works, and and minimize the importance and what Paul's trying to say in passages like Ephesians two eight and nine. Uh, in this argument, Luther went as far to try to cast aspersions on the authenticity and canonicity of the letter of James because of what James says in James two fourteen through 26. And so, when you have an argument that's been going on that long, it's a good question to wonder, can it ever be understood? Is, is there any really viable way forward with this discussion? And we believe there is. But what we have to do is we have to get beyond arguments being made in the 16th century, get beyond arguments being made even in the 5th century, and get back to what's going on in the New Testament, understand it in context, uh, to provide a meaningful way forward. And to do that, we're going to have to understand what Paul says to the people to whom he's saying it, to his audience, and the world in which he lives. And so let's look, particularly in Romans, and also in Galatians, to see what God, through Paul, has to say about faith, works, and grace. And so we begin in Romans. And in Romans 1, we have this very important passage to begin with. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say he's speaking to the saints in Rome. So we have this very long introduction where Paul is, is talking a lot about who Jesus is. But he gives us this purpose statement of verse 5. It's through Jesus that he's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Now it's important to note here that as Paul begins Romans, Romans has been this great treatise of faith and of grace, and we're not going to argue with that, but he begins here and says what his purpose is. It's unto the obedience of the nations. That's the ultimate goal. And so we start to see from the very beginning that 
Paul doesn't have the hang-ups that many others have after him in terms of the relationship between grace, faith, and obedience. Um, And the fact is we're going to see throughout the letter, Paul expects that Jews and Gentiles must come to an obedient faith. We then get to verse 16 that really anchors the beginning of this discussion that will continue about faith, works, and grace. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul begins here by saying it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus that provides salvation. It's God's power to salvation, to the Greek and to the Jew. It's able to do that because the righteousness of God is revealed in faith to faith. Uh, the idea is that uh, those who put their trust in God and their trust is in God will receive salvation uh, through the message of what God has done in Christ. And so this is kind of the purpose, the thesis. This is what he's trying to prove as he continues on in his discussion. We're going to see how it comes back to that very, that very important theme. And so he begins in verses 18 through 32 of Romans chapter 1 by talking about the spiritual darkness, particularly of the Gentiles. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and mammals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty of their heir. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so, what Paul's trying to get across here for our purposes is the Gentiles are lost in sin. This, this really didn't need to be proved very much. Everybody would agree with that at that time. But he's showing how it happened. That they should have known about God because of the things he made. It should have been evident the, the, the uniqueness, singularity of the uh, creator should be clear in what he has made. And also, his one in relationship should be clear in 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 um, the creation as well through humanity. Um, but the fact that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie meant that they were given over to their natural lusts, and thus they required salvation. And this is important for us to understand in terms of understanding Paul's argument is the, the way the Gentiles are. He's not writing just any old Gentiles, any old pagans. He's writing to ancient Greeks and Romans. 
Uh, they're known for their immorality and idolatry. And the reason for this, in part, is that their religion was truly what we call orthopraxic. And that's from two Greek words, ortho, right, and praxis, works, which means orthopraxic religion is about doing the right things. Uh, specifically, uh, as a professor I had once said, you can believe that Zeus is a complete jerk, but as long as you provide the requisite sacrifices, you can secure his good favor. And so in Hellenistic religion, and thus the practice of the culture, you could do whatever you wanted to do as long as nobody was harmed, uh, as, and you can excuse it with sacrifice. And so Paul's preaching to people who don't think that what God has said or done has any real bearing on, on their life, that they placate the gods of sacrifices and, and hold their gods in contempt. And, and after all, you look at the gods and the stories of the gods that they told, and the gods are, are full of adultery and lying and deceit and, and all kinds of, of debased behavior. And if that's what they think the gods are doing, why should we expect them to rise above them? And this is going to be important for us to remember about the Gentiles. But here, everybody's going to agree uh, that they're condemned. And that's exactly what he's trying to point out as he begins Romans chapter 2. Uh, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." So he's beginning here with those who sit in judgment of these evil pagans, uh, but are probably doing the very same things themselves. Very likely a veiled reference to the Jews. Not restricted to the Jews, but especially to those who always appoint since the Gentiles, yet were doing many of the same things themselves. He continues in Romans 2 and verse 6, talking about the judgment. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law. Excuse me, that was verse 12, we'll get there. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Uh, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So this section is very important that we see that there is a basis for judgment and that God is impartial about it. He's not going to give certain people favorites because of the amount of money they had or because of ethnic or cultural status. Uh, No, that what God's going to do is he's going to render according to his works. This is very important for our discussion, that condemnation or commendation in this sense are both based upon works. And you could try to say, wait a second, if if we're going to be saved because of our works, does that mean that, that... Paul's a, a hypocrite or, or a contradictory. And, and, and to say that is to not understand what Paul's trying to get at here. But it's important to note here that there's a reference to work here. That those who seek to obey the Lord Jesus and obey God and do what is right, they will be saved. They'll have eternal life. But those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth. Notice he even comes out with that. Uh, but obeys unrighteousness is going to be wrath and fury. And that's going to be true for the Jew and for the Greek. Uh, God is not a respecter person, so you're going to suffer the consequences of your evil behavior. But if you seek after the good, you're going to, to be rewarded. And we're going to see how Paul talks about this. Um, 
And it's important also to note that when he says that there's no partiality, he's overthrowing thousands of years of racial and ethnic bias by making that statement. And, um, and it was very hard to swallow at that time, as we will see. So beginning in verse 12 now, at this point, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, um, he's starting this, definitely continuing starting this critique of the Jews subtly, but we're getting to the question of, well, how, how can Gentiles be judged by their works if they did not receive the law of Moses? Again, throughout Romans, Paul tends to do this. He's, he's anticipating questions, uh, either in explanation or in maybe even antagonism. And so the question comes, well, how can God show uh, glory and honor and peace to the Greek who does good if they have not received the law? He says, well, those who are have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, uh, that the doers of the law will be justified. And, and he's talking about the fact that there are some Gentiles who have lived faithfully, that they have actually not gone down the way of the pagans, but have done the best they could, uh, demonstrating that God has written on their hearts the, 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 what we call the moral law, that intuitively we understand that we should not commit adultery, we should not uh, steal or murder, but we shouldn't seek, seek to help people as we have opportunity. And really shows that it's not just who hear the law. You're, you're not privileged because you got it. You're, you only get the benefit if you're doing it. And you're going to be shown up by those who didn't receive it, but are doing it even though they didn't receive it. Uh, and this is getting us into the next section, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so, what Paul is doing here is he's now turning specifically to the Jews. And he's talking to them who, because they have this kind of pride, they've received the law. But he's saying that just because they receive the law doesn't mean they're automatically going to be saved. Because... Just because they, they, they see the laws, are they doing the things the law said, or are they actually breaking the law? Um, and in fact, that they dishonor God by breaking the law. And, and then goes ahead and quotes here from Isaiah 52, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Uh, which is the, the strongest indictment, that even though they should know better, they're not acting like they know better. And that's really the indictment of Israel. That throughout its history, Israel should have known better but didn't act any better, and therefore could not be the light of the nations God intended it for to be, and the source of blessing God intended it for it to be. And that is why uh, God, through Christ, has overcome that, and now uh, calls all people to himself. He continues the argument in verse 6. 
verse, verse 25 excuse me, of chapter 2. Uh, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your uncircumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but of God. So the whole idea here he's trying to say from verse 17 through 29 is that the Jewish person is not saved because he's a Jew. In fact, he's introducing this fact that when you say that you're a person of God but break the law, you're not only causing the Gentiles to blaspheme, but you're you're demonstrating that you're not really in Christ, if you do this without, or excuse me, not really within God, his covenant, if you keep doing this persistently, and you do not repent. And so he goes to circumcision, which is this great, thing. well, we've been circumcised. Well, Paul, Paul does this very radical thing, saying that somebody who is uncircumcised but does what God says is reckoned as circumcised. And somebody who is circumcised but isn't doing what God said is reckoned as uncircumcised. He's not trying to make an argument that somehow the this condition of the foreskin changes. What he's trying to say is in the heart, the spiritual circumcision, which is really what's the important one, that you can have the mark on the flesh, that doesn't mean that you're doing what God said. If you're doing what God said, whether you're, you have the outward mark on your skin or not, is what's really important here. And the praise that comes is not from man, but from God. That circumcision, that being a Jew is one inwardly, by the Spirit, that you're following after what God has said. And this is going to prove important as he continues on to explain uh, how it is that Christians are, can be the people of God, even though they do not follow the law of Moses. So this, this question here, getting us to the idea that those who are in Christ are in Israel, are going to lead to this question. Okay, uh, and he even comes out with it in verse chapter 3. In verse one, then what has it, what advantage has the Jew? You know, we're going to get to looking at uh, what, what the benefit there could possibly be in if uh, they're not going to be saved because of their of of being Jews. But uh, Paul has to do this. Paul has to make this argument because of the history of Israel. That the Jews pride themselves in being God's people and consider themselves worthy of salvation because they were God's people. God had promised them that the land of Canaan would be their land, and that God was their God. And for a large portion of their history, and, and throughout the time that Paul's alive, and while this, when this letter is written, there's this temple in Jerusalem where they could make the sacrifices God commanded. And the Jews would look at those Gentiles and all the nasty things they did, and, and felt like they uh, were people separated from God. And they believed in that sanctification, uh, that because they held to certain rituals, even though they did not do everything God commanded, and often were rebellious against God even while attempting to keep themselves separate in certain conventions, meant that their salvation was entitled because of their religious and ethnic heritage. Uh, and that's what Paul's trying to really deconstruct here. But he's not trying to say that the Jews had absolutely no benefit at all. He says, uh, he continues on, uh, uh, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one are a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how then could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good, evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. There's this critique going around of Paul, that, and, 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 and the gospel Paul is preaching, that um, because he's teaching that grace abounded where sin happened, that that meant that he was actually trying to commend sinfulness, that they should keep sinning. And that's absolutely not the case. And people would take would overreact to what Paul is saying. Well, if the Jews didn't have salvation because they received the law, then that must mean God is not really righteous or God, uh, God not really faithful. And, and so Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. Uh, even though Israel proved faithless, does not mean that God has proved faithless. God, God has been faithful despite Israel's faithlessness. And Israel's faithlessness has been highly contrasting to God's faithfulness and in its own ironic way magnifies God's faithfulness. Because God proves faithful every time, even though Israel fails. Um, and as Paul says, Paul is still there's still that condemnation of being a sinner. So trying to say that somehow uh, acting like... Uh, uh, good can uh, about, could come because evil is done. That that's absolutely not the case at all. Uh, there's still that condemnation for those who sin, and that's what he's getting into as he begins in verse nine. This very important passage uh, from verse nine through verse twenty, which is the whole thrust of what he's been getting at since Romans one eighteen. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged it all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be called, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So that's the, the conclusion. All the Jews are shut up under sin as well. The Jews have all sinned. And so he goes to Psalms 14, 53, 5, 140, 10, Psalm 1, 3, and Isaiah 59, and also Psalm 36. And he just takes his pastiche of verses, uh, taking out of context all these places, and uses all of these um, hyperbolic, uh, extreme uh, verses to show uh, the general pattern of man's sinfulness, specifically Israel's sinfulness. Uh, and because all men have sinned, uh, no work of man is able inherently to justify before God. Because any work of man is going to be done according to a standard. But the problem with any standard is that if you've broken that standard, you've violated that standard. So that's why Paul says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So the, so the whole idea to this point is that Gentiles couldn't get there by works. By just buying gods off with the sacrifices. And continue their depraved lifestyle. Jews aren't going to get there by upholding the law and acting like they've done it because they've transgressed it all. And so now we have a solution, which is verses 21 through 26. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now we have the message right there. What has God done? All have been set up under sin, shut up under sin. All have sinned. So God has displayed his grace. He has given of this gift, which is redemption in Jesus, that Jesus has died on the cross. And it is to be received by faith. That's how you receive the gift of God. And this is not by distinction between Jew and Greek, that both Jew and Greek can receive it. So, then we have the question about law. Okay, what about law? What becomes of our boasting, verse 27, is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So again, there's that question, what are you doing with the law? What are you doing with the law? What are you doing with all these things? Well, he said, no, we're upholding that. We're not saying that it, 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 it's wrong, but that, in fact, Christ is its fulfillment, and that God is not just a God of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. And it's not based on works, it's based on faith. And so then in chapter 4, he immediately goes to where every Jew's mind is going to go. And that's going back to uh, Abraham. What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, Paul goes to this example and goes right to Abraham. Did Abraham earn his gift? And he took it that way, and it sounds stupid. Of course he didn't earn his gift. Okay? And so Paul, he focuses on this verse in Genesis chapter 15. That Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is very important. It's also the verse that will be quoted by James in James chapter 2. Um, when you talk about working, you know, you work a day's wage, you get paid, okay? Uh, that's kind of from our own lives. You work for wage and more, you earn the pay that you make. On the other hand, you might work at home. And you certainly don't feel like uh, when you work for loved ones at home, uh, you expect a reward that you get paid. That's You do it just because it needs to be done, because you're thankful for the opportunity to share in family and things of that nature. And so that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. Not that Abraham didn't put any effort forth, but that he did not receive the gift because of his effort, that it wasn't something he earned. 
God, Abraham couldn't have earned his standing before God. Abraham had sinned like the rest of us. But instead, he put his faith in God who justifies the ungodly. That's how he earned, so to speak, quote-unquote, uh, his standing. It's not that he deserved it, but he put his trust in God. Now, why does he say that? What's he getting to? Well, we see in the beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And he continues in verses 18 through 25, talking about how Abraham displayed faith even though he was old, and he would able to have offspring as the stars of heaven or the sand of the seashore. Uh, and that it was not written for his sake alone, but also ours, because we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will share in that faith. The whole point of this is to show that the promise was not through the law. That if it came through the law, it'd be void. That no, Abraham received it before circumcision because he would be the one who, through whom would come the blessings of the covenant first to Israel, but then to all men. That he would be the father of many nations. That it's not through works of a law, but it's through faith. It's through putting one's trust in God. That not just those who are circumcised, but all who share the faith of Abraham could receive the blessings of Abraham. And that's how it can come to all men, not just Israel. We also do well to consider uh, in Galatians as well, because Galatians will say some things that can kind of clarify uh, that may not be evident from what we've seen about grace, faith, and works in Romans. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse 10, we have another explanation. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So you can see how this really kind of clears up some of the things we see in Romans. Uh, that those who rely on works of the law are cursed because those who do not do all the things uh, are cursed. Uh, and in fact, you look at everybody has broken that law in some way. And therefore, all are under that curse. Uh, and in fact, in verse 11, it's very important. He says that 
no one is justified before God by the law. And that he, go, he goes and quotes Habakkuk again, just like he did in Romans one seventeen. He goes back and quotes Habakkuk two four: "The righteous shall live by faith," uh, showing that this is not just a new covenant phenomenon. That the reason that uh, the Christian is going to have stand before God is the same reason ultimately that not only Abraham but Moses and David and every prophet and every Israelite has a standing, which is that by faith, because even they can't boast in the law. That's the whole point of what Paul's trying to show. Uh, Christ had to be the curse for us. And Christ had to take on that curse for us to overcome its consequences so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles as well. And so, we've used these texts. We can go to James, we can go to a lot of other places, but we've picked these texts in Romans and Galatians because these are the ones most prominently uh, used when discussing great faith and works uh, in so many ways, uh, especially trying to overemphasize grace and faith to the detriment of works. And, and so we can see even here that there's a very coherent argument being made. And it goes back to that foundation we saw in Romans 1, that Paul's goal is the obedience of the nations. And in verses 16 and 17, that the gospel is God's power to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Because the righteous live by faith. So what we see in Romans 1 through 3 is that man has sinned and fallen short. And we also see in Galatians 3.10 that man cannot be justified by works if there is sin to his account. And since all men have been have fallen short, uh, man himself is not capable to bridge the gap. God bridged the gap with the sacrifice of his son for the forgiveness of sins. This is the way God has manifested his grace to us. Faith is the belief in the truth of Jesus Christ, paired with obedience to his will. Now, a lot of people will object to that, especially in the Protestantism, because uh, it, that faith would require works, and they see Paul saying that works do not save. And again, the issue is they're looking at this through the prism of arguments between uh, Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century. But Paul's writing in the 1st century, where Gentiles are practicing a religion based upon doing the right works, doing the right sacrifices over all things, and that Jews are proud of their distinctiveness and trusted in the distinctiveness from the law as the basis of their salvation. And so what Paul's trying to do is show each group that works and birth cannot justify a man, that Jesus is the only one who can justify. And that's why he emphasizes over and over again that works do not justify, and they cannot save. But the emphasis is that it's based on works. And nobody argues, to my knowledge, that anybody is going to be saved based upon their works. It's always that foundation, that they have done what they needed to do, that that they've obeyed God in every respect. We all recognize, no, that Everybody has sinned. But yet, within the text itself, we can see in Romans 2 and in chapter 3 that uh, Paul was not excluding any kind of work there. Because he'll say in the midst of this whole discourse that we are going to be judged and God's going to render each according to his works. And uh, he's not trying to suggest that we are saved or condemned by factors beyond our control and that our judgment or destiny are determined by, uh, uh, completely independently of us, but in fact are at least at some level dependent upon what we've done. And, and the difference is what Paul speaks of in Romans 2, 6 through 10, Romans 4, 4 and 5. That if we try to do work for self, if we try to work for ourselves, and we try to, to do the works that we do to, to earn salvation, well, we can't do that. We, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. But if we don't 
work to earn salvation, if we're not looking at it as a wage, but instead that we are depending upon the Lord Jesus and entrusting ourselves in His will and seeking to do His will because of what He's done for us, in thankfulness for what He's done for us, the great salvation accomplished by grace, that, that we trust in that and we live according to that trust, seeking His glory and honor and, and patience, uh, that will save. That God, Christ became the curse of the lost that we might live by faith in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, and therefore be accounted as righteous. So, yes, there have been arguments for 500 years and more, and it's very easy to go to extremes. But just because you'll fly to the extremes doesn't mean that that's where you have to stay. That, in fact, there is no contradiction in this message. All have sinned and fallen short of the God, and therefore works of man in and of themselves can never, will never save. In Romans 1-3, through that's absolutely certain. That God has demonstrated His grace to us by sending His Son to die on the cross to take on the curse from the law and to allow for our salvation in Romans 3.20-26 and Galatians 3.10-14. That's absolutely true. There's nothing we can do to deserve it or earn it. Our response to this manifestation of God's grace is belief and faith. And that faith must be an obedient faith, the one by which the righteous live, and whose works, which are not done for merit, but in response to trust and belief in God, can lead to salvation. Romans 1, 5, 16, 17, 2, 6 through 11, 3, 27, 31, and 4, 1 through 8. There's no disharmony in these, or with Ephesians 2, or James chapter 2. We don't have to see them as being in discontinuity or in disharmony. We can see the harmony involved. Are we saved by our works? No. Are we going to be saved without working? No. That's not a contradiction. It's a recognition that we are dependent upon what God has done for us. Everything we do and are must be grounded and rooted in what God has done for us. That God's grace is of great value, but that it must be received by faith. And faith only is worthy of the term when it does the will of the one in whom we have put our faith. And that is what we must do. That we must put our trust in the Lord, in God and the Lord Jesus for what he has done for us in his demonstration of grace and thus live in an obedient faith to the glory of God. So we're again very thankful that you've taken this time to spend with us, and we hope that you've been encouraged and strengthened your faith. If you have any questions about anything we've said, uh, maybe you want to learn more about how to obtain this faith and to, to, to obtain this grace to, to put your trust in Jesus, or maybe you just have some difficulties you want to talk about or anything at all, have prayer requests, anything at all. If we can be of interest in any way, please contact me through my website at theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or if you'd like to know more about the Venice Church of Christ, check us out online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on Facebook and Google+, Instagram, Meetup, Twitter, YouTube, Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.